Here's a question for you. When is it that you run for cover? Think about this for a moment. Let's say that you're armed with a couple of water balloons and you round a corner and you come across your enemy who is armed with a hose. Right? What do you do? You run for cover, right? At that point, you are outmanned by the hose with your couple of water balloons. We all tend to run for cover when we're under attack, right? When the sky is falling, that's when we run for cover. So when we run for cover is pretty obvious and probably pretty similar, but where we run for cover is what I want to look at this morning. Where do you run for cover? There's lots of choices, and when you think about it, many of them prove really feeble when they're tested. They seem like a good place to run for cover, and then they're put under the test, and they don't hold up. So here's my question. When storms hit, are you safe? What can be done in advance to protect you from storms? What is it you can do before the storm to prepare for the storm? If you've been through a few storms, this is a really important question for you. You've wrestled with this one. Let me throw out some things from everyday life that, on a personal level, are designed to to shelter us from the storm. We have insurance and tax shelters. We have helmets and airbags, alarm systems, locks on our doors, uh, not to to mention emotional and spiritual storms that may come and some of the preparation that, that, that may come from there. So on a personal level, we're keenly interested in being prepared to protect These kinds of components. You track it with me? How about a national level? Let's think on a national level for a moment. FEMA and national borders, military and national budget, social security and job security. These all are designed as shields to protect you from some storm. Kids, you will hear your parents listen on the radio, watch on TV, read on the internet in the coming months as we prepare for a new vote, a new president. Endless discussion back and forth at a national level of these kinds of topics, right? Here's the question. Personally and nationally, are they working? Are they working? Is the, is the shield protecting from the storm that it's designed to protect us from? Now, if you just kind of survey our land, maybe you would join with me in finding this opinion to be true. That joy and peace are rare commodities in our land. Joy and peace. What if you could absolutely know that you were covered, come what may? What if you were utterly confident that no matter what is in the future that you can't control, you knew that you were covered? It would stand to reason that the byproduct of that, the fruit of that reality in your life, would produce joy and peace. And here's what I bet. I bet that if you possessed joy and peace, because you knew you were covered, come what may, that it would turn heads to you. People would wonder, what is up in your life that you have such joy and peace in the midst of these times? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9, and I want you to look for this piece of paper in your bulletin. Every one of you should have one. If you don't, you can raise your hands, and some magical usher will appear from nowhere and hand you one. Um, There's not a lot of 
specific fill-in-the-blanks, but there's lots of room for you to jot down that which interests you, that which you want to come back to. Uh, some of the scriptures I'm going to refer to today are already in your notes, so you don't have to panic and write them down. Others, I keep you guessing, and you have to panic. So you can take notes at your will. Judges chapter 9 is where we're at. We're in this series called Judge for Yourself. And one of the powers of history is the ability to look back on people and make judgments about them. And we look back on history with an intent to kind of evaluate our own lives. We live our lives through the grid of our, of our own circumstances. So when we look back on history, we can actually look at them and see some things. What we've been discovering about judges is this. What, what maybe some of us would have a prejudice to say, oh, those ancient primitive people in the times of Judges. We're finding ourselves in it, aren't we? I mean, we are finding the exact same characteristics, the exact same pitfalls going down. Over and over, we see ourselves in the book of Judges. So rather than a mere boring history lesson of just learning something that went on in the past that doesn't affect our lives at all, the challenge to you this morning is this. Would you look on these people with an intent to let it reflect back on you and make assessments about how your life is going? Judges chapter 9 is what we'll be looking at, but I want to go up a few verses. Look at chapter 8, verse 33. That's where I want to start because it really provides the context. It says this, As soon as Gideon died, Israel turned again. Turned again what? Turned again to sin. Remember this sin cycle? They kind of they kind of get out of it, right? They cry out to God. God rescues them, delivers them, and then there's blessing. And then what happens? They forget the Lord and they turn again into sin. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites turned again. Here was a common experience for me growing up in a car with my three brothers and my parents. We'd say, Dad, there's a cop! As we're driving down the road. Now, I was raised on shows like Chips and Dukes of Hazard. Anyone with me on that? Come on now. If you see a police officer, you slow down. That's what those shows taught me. And here was my dad's response every time. He'd say, Great! There's no flinching, there's no varying of speeds, there's no checking in the rearview mirrors. Why? Because my dad drove like an old lady. My dad doesn't break the law on the road. That's just how he drove. So he would say, great, there's the police around. And we'd be, like, we'd be dumbfounded, because every show taught us you're supposed to run from them, be scared of them, change your behavior immediately. Here's the point. Do you see that there's a difference between being a law-abiding citizen and a law-abiding citizen in the presence of the police? Do you see that those are two different things, right? As soon as Gideon died, Israel turned again. Here's the principle I want to draw. It's the very first thing. Live life in full view of God, because it is. Live all of life in full view of God, because it is. We actually get to look into the hearts of people because we get to see their actions. Because the author notes that, that it was as soon as Gideon died that they turned again, uh, we were able to see what their motivation for obedience was. Just jot down Judges 4.1. We, 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 we see the same thing. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When? Here it is. After Ehud died. So, why were they obeying? Quite simply, the presence of authority kept them from sin. As soon as the presence of authority was gone, it's like the levees broke in New Orleans and this flood of sin just came pouring out. 
Now, lest we sit here uh, thinking that we're somehow above this and we can pretend that this is foreign to us, let me just mention the word substitute teacher. Kids, when substitute teachers come, if you are a substitute teacher, do you track with sometimes the kids don't obey quite as well, right? Um, how about those of you on sports teams? I was out on a hike with my daughter this week, and I saw two cross-country coaches positioned at this one spot uh, in, on, on the trail. And Tegan and I came around. We came to the top of the trail, and from the top, we had seen these high schoolers were, were running to the top of the hill. And we stood up there for a second, and I told Tegan, I said, Tegan, do you see those two people down there under the shade? She said, yeah. I said, those are the coaches of the cross-country team. I said, do you know why they're sitting right there? And she immediately got it. She goes, because they can see the top of the hill to see if the runners actually ran to the top or not. So when we came down, I came down and I told them, I said, I said you guys are positioned really well. And they, they just smiled knowingly, probably because they were cross-country runners at one point, and their coaches didn't position themselves where they could see the top of the hill, right? Now, lest we pick on high schoolers and youth. Um, how about when the boss is on a trip, right? There's a saying, when, when the cat's away, what? The mice will play. We've all been the mice before, right? So, so how about you? Is there an external force that is holding you back from sin? Is there something in your life that you go, gosh, if that were removed, where would my heart go? What's my motivation for obedience? I wrestled with that question but this week. It's pretty convicting. I wonder if you'd be so bold as to pray this prayer found in the Psalms. It's Psalm 139, 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. There are some parents in the room, and parents know that the gold standard of obedience is when your kid cleans their room or shares when you aren't around and there's no promise or even hope of reward immediately, right? Why? Because it's starting to become a part of them. They're starting to do it from a place other than threat or external reward. Do you know that Pastor Paul fought for, for the exact same theme? Philippians 2.12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why much more in my absence? Because he knew the temptation would be that when the authority, when the coach, when the personal trainer, when the parent, when the cop goes away and we're left on our own, we're going to be tempted to just slack off and kind of veer off course. Parents and pastors love it when their followers are caught obeying behind their back. Right? Parents, isn't that true? I mean, we love it when we catch our kids obeying behind our back. So does God. Live life in full view of God because it is. God delights in obedience from an undivided heart. We see this over and over in Scripture. It's the gold standard of why we would follow God and how we would walk in His ways. That it would come from a place of an undivided heart. Now, take all that I just said and understand this. We are in a dark period of Israel's history. Israel is the chosen people of God. It's the people of God that, that he chose, redeemed, and is choosing to bless. And this chapter we're about to look at is anything but what I just described. They're not obeying God. 
They're certainly not obeying God from an undivided heart. If, if their heart is undivided, it's set on one thing, rebellion and sin. And in this chapter, violence. So the next judge that comes on the scene is kind of a living example of many of the Proverbs. Now, you might think that's a good thing. Wouldn't you want to be written about in the Bible? Well, it kind of depends, right? I mean, the Proverbs talk a lot about the wise and the blessed and the righteous. But it also talks about the fool and the proud and the wicked. Abimelech, on the count of three, say that with me. One, two, three. Abimelech, fun name to say. That's who we're looking at. Abimelech was a walking poster child of what the Proverbs calls a worthless and wicked person. Proverbs 6.12, what are worthless and wicked people like? They are constant liars. Their perverted hearts plot evil, and they constantly stir up trouble. But, they're, but, but they will be destroyed suddenly, broken in an instant, beyond all hope of healing. Remember this proverb. Abimelech lives this out. It's as if this is the preview and Abimelech is the movie. He, he brings this to fruition by the choices in his life. Let's look at Abimelech for a second. Abimelech's family tree is sort of the context of his story. It's, it's, it's ours as well, right? You kind of look at where you came from and it kind of describes the little bits of who you are and why you respond this way and what you're trying to overcome and what you're blessed with. Well, the same is true of, of Abimelech. When you look at Abimelech's grandpappy, he took a stand for God. That was a good thing. How about his dad? His dad was Gideon. Remember that from last week? Did Gideon take a stand for God? Absolutely. Was it flawed? Of course. But this man of courage that he was called really lived up to that and began to, to, to do some things. He had some successes with God. But sometimes putting the success coat on is really hard to wear, and it was hard to wear for Gideon. He said the right things. They, they came to him. They said, Gideon, you're such a stud. We want you to rule over us. He said this, not me. I'm not going to do that. Not me or my sons. The Lord will, will, will rule over you. He said the right things, and then catch this. He went right on to live the wrong way. Can anyone identify with that in here? I mean, we've got it theologically. We know the right answer. If someone came and asked, hey, how is the Christian supposed to live? Boom, you've got it. Chapter, verse, and a three-point lesson. And then you could walk right out the door and live the wrong way. This was Gideon. I won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. would make such a great leader. Here's what Gideon went out and did. Gideon went out and started acting like a king. He received money for his victory. That's a king-like thing to do. He took many wives. That's a king-like thing to do. And then not so subtly, he named his son Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. Now, we have two more kids coming, and I pushed for a name that means my dad is super awesome, but fortunately, God gave me a wife that said, no, we're not going to name our kid that. If you name your kid, my father is king, what are you trying to say? Right? I mean, you can say, I'm not going to rule over you, but then you go and act like a king. That's exactly what Gideon did. Judges chapter 8, verse 28. Look at it with me. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. This is the cycle. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. Trouble. 
He also had a concubine. Trouble in Shechem. Some fun names in here. Who gave birth to a son whom he named my father is king, Abimelech. Now this one son is mentioned amongst all the 70 because he basically now is going to step onto the stage of history and direct the nation of Israel. Remember that he was from Shechem because that's really, really important. I'm sort of a history buff. I like looking at history and reading history and studying history. And if you look at history at all, you see these people rise to power and you ask this question, how on earth did that guy get into power? Who who in their right mind would think that's a good guy to vote for if they had any say at all? Hitler was one of those. Hitler's sort of a short guy with a weird mustache, right? And when you look at Germany at the time and you look at Hitler at the time, what you realize with anyone who comes on the scene in power, it's always the fruit of seeds that were planted in a different season, right? We know this, we're at kind of harvest time right now, right? When do you harvest something but, but, but that there's fruit because there were seeds planted in some other season? So it is always with people who rise to power. You know what Hitler did? Hitler came on the scene and he tapped into the anger and the shame of German people. The Germans had what they called, after World War I, the wound which will never heal. The shame and defeat that the German people felt after World War I, they described nationally as the wound which will never heal. Hitler comes in and he taps into that shame, he taps into that anger, and he begins to do some things aggressively. And you know what happens? He begins to win. And he does it in such a way that good, common, decent thinking people begin to overlook the aggression and overlook the atrocities because there's this thing moving forward. Initially, there was a lot of pushback to him. He's going to destroy Germany. We can't win against the world. But then they saw nation after nation start to fall, and they jumped on board with it and overlooked what was good and decent. Seeds planted in a different season always allow for a leader to rise up. Now, let's look at Israel for a moment. What are the seeds planted in Israel's history? Here it is. A people who were constantly apostate. What does apostate mean? It means traitor. It means one who falls away, one who turns away from the truth. So as a society, this is a society that keeps turning away. What's the big theme of judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When you have a society where everyone's doing what's right in their their own eyes and there's no common sense of what's right, wrong, in or out, no referee, you know what happens? The loudest, biggest bully steps forward into power. So when you have a society where everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, it is ripe for a tyrant dictator to step on the scene. Guess what happens in Judges 9? A tyrant dictator steps on the scene. Now, if you look at sort of one through six, if you're jotting notes, you can go back and look at this more later on. Uh, but basically, you have this violent power grab of a tyrant. Illegitimate methods to gain the throne indicate an illegitimate rule, right? The shepherd goes in by the gate, right? Those who look to steal the, the sheep and do things, they, they do it other ways. We see that with power grabs. We have this dynamic young leader, and he gets super dangerous because someone gives him some money and a following. Does this story play out in our day ever? Come on, sports people, celebrities. You have a young, dynamic personality kind of rising up, and all of a sudden, money's thrown at this person, notoriety's thrown at this person, and guess what happens? They get super dangerous. 
That's exactly what happens with Abimelech. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. He gathers around himself, ESV translates it as worthless and reckless fellows. <laughs> I need some worthless, worthless and reckless fellows. I'll get you guys right here. So this is what happens. To discover the character of anyone, you just kind of look at the person's posse, right? Who does that person run with? What company interests that person? If you're attracted to pleasures, then you're all about the party posse, right? You want to get people around you that love to party with you. If fame has your eye, then that which is popular is what you chase after. You're like, man, if I can just get with people who are popular, I will be saved out of my misery of non-notoriety. If God is your thing, then you're after the pure posse, right? People whose hearts are chasing after God, those are really attractive people to have around you in company. So just like a leader, you can tell their character by who they gather around them. Worthless and reckless fellows is the foreshadow of where Abimelech's life is going to end up. He gets these reckless adventurers around him. Verses 7 to 12, or 7 to 21, excuse me. This guy, Jotham. Jotham is the half-brother of Abimelech. It's Jotham's fable. There's one brother that escapes this murderous rise to power. There There are 70 brothers, and 69 of them are immediately executed. And there's one brother left. And he taps into his inner storytelling. And what he does is he exposes Abimelech. He exposes the leaders of Shechem. He exposes the whole process as a wicked joke. This person that's been propped up as a king is a puppet. It's a power grab. Look at the rest of Judges. Every other judge is raised up by God. This one, Abimelech, just goes and grabs himself. And he does it violently. Remember from Deborah, chapter 4 and 5? What is Deborah, or Deborah 5? What is Judges 5 all about? That's, that's Deborah's song. And what we see is this. In song, in that art form of music, there's this way of telling history and praising God that, that kind of bypasses just the data points, right? It gets to somewhere. And so what we see now is another art form. Art is just such an important part of our culture. Here's another art form that's going to expose truth. It's going to kind of draw out and put light on something. Political satire sometimes is the only safe way to speak truth. Sometimes it's outright direct protest with very clear language. Sometimes it's a little story that people kind of grab onto and go, oh, yeah, this is a big sham as far as how this person has come to power. That's essentially what, what Jotham does. I'll give you the, the story in kind of a nutshell, but it's really worth reading. Um, parents, if you if you would like, if you don't own a copy of the message, um, Eugene Peterson's a guy who translated the Bible for his grandkids. And he kind of took words and he kind of took ideas. And, and, it, and I, I read this in the message. It was really powerful. You can find that online if you can't. But maybe reading that to your kids uh, this, this week would be interesting. Kind of ties this whole thing in together. But here it is. Basically, there are trees personified. Okay? So think of talking, walking trees from movies that we see sometimes. There's olive tree, there's a fig tree, and there's a vine. Now, if you think about those three trees, all of those are producers of something. Right? And if you look at that day and age, these were producers of really, really important crops to the overall survival of this people. And essentially, each one is asked to be ruler, and each one re- refuses. And then along comes a thorn bush, 
and he's asked to be ruler, and he proudly responds this way. If you're serious, then all of you trees, come and find refuge in my shade. You know what's really silly about this? How tall is a thorn bush? A foot, right? Maybe two feet high. How tall are these other trees? A lot bigger. Pride makes you ridiculous. Pride makes you say really silly things. Hey, come and find refuge in my shade. You're a thorn bush. His answer should have been no, but he says yes and accepts it. Here's what's happened. Jotham, in a very public way, see verse 7, calls out his, his half-brother, and he basically says this, you just got served by my story. He drops the mic, and instead of walking off stage, you know what he does? He runs for his life. Look at verse 21. He takes off out of there. You know why? His brother is a murderer. He's a really, really scary dude, and he's got worthless and reckless fellows with him. So he says this thing in a very public way, and then he takes off out of there. For three years, it looks like Abimelech's plan is coming together. It seems like there's always a season where sin kind of flourishes and does its thing. I'm sure for Jotham, that was a long three years. God, where's your justice in this? This guy has risen to power in a terrible way. What's happening? But violence has this boomerang effect. We have this saying, what goes around comes around, right? Violent people experience violence. History seems stuck on repeat with this truth, that if you rise to power by violence, you meet your end by violence. What was our story for the week, uh, this, this week in, in long story short? Tower of Babel, right? In that story, what we have is we have people there and they are uh, dispersed because God confused their speech. And people went their own way, and there was many different places and languages that, 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 that people speak. But you know what we see? The heart is the same in men and women all over the world. doesn't matter what language you speak. doesn't matter where you live. You see this over and over. Let me show you a little bit from history. Each one of these people rose to power by violence and then met their end by violence. Julius Caesar in the Roman Republic in 448. Mussolini in Italy. In 1945, Ceausescu in Romania, 1989, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, 2006. Remember Colonel uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, right? 2011. These people all were heads of state. There's another person who didn't necessarily have a state, but he had an organization, and he met his end in 2011. Every one of these people, violent people, Go do the study on it. They rose to power in the very same way that Abimelech did. They rose by violence. They fell by violence. This is far from a complete list. There's just hordes of these stories over and over and over all over the globe. I didn't even touch Africa, which is an, an ongoing cycle of this. Now, here's a modern-day one that is kind of across our news. There's this guy, El Chapo, running around Mexico right now. He's a violent man. I don't know the date, but the great predictor is that he will end his rule in the drug-lorn scene of Mexico by violence. Violence has a boomerang effect. Violence done 
will lead to being done in by violence. What goes around comes around. Now, some of you in this room right now are saying this. Wait a minute. We're in Judges chapter 9. There's already been all sorts of violence, and much of it has been commanded by God. What about that? I commend you. That's really astute. You ought to be asking that question. The pastor just said that what goes around comes around. Here's how I would answer that. I would answer that by saying this. Is the violence being done sanctioned by God or sanctioned by man? Here's the big question. On whose authority? Who's the judge? Who's the one calling the shots? Just as the anger of man doesn't produce righteousness, so the violence of man can't produce God's will. It will never accomplish God's will. See James 1.20. People like, like to look for easy answers in the scriptures. And over and over again, if you really begin to study an issue, you find that there aren't always cut and dry easy answers. It'd be easy to just say, God either is a warmonger or God's a complete pacifist. And I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see either one of those. Think about Jesus. Jesus comes into a place where people are selling God. Just like in this setting, the people up front are, are, are driven by their greed and they're selling God. What does he do? He thrashes the place, right? In anger. And yet Jesus taught and modeled meekness. That's a little confusing. How about the fact that Jesus told his disciples, hey, uh, it's kind of getting near the end of the times. You might want to get some swords now. <laughs> Remember that? And yet as he's getting arrested, Luke twenty-two forty-nine says this, when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And before waiting for an answer, it says one of them struck at the high priest's slave slashing off his right ear. What does Jesus do in that moment? He heals the guy, right? Matthew records what he says in that moment. Put away your sword, Jesus said to him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. So to say that Jesus is either a warmonger or a complete pacifist, you just can't do that in Scripture. What we see is this. Every week we've been taking some items <clears throat> as exhibit A and exhibit B. And what we have here is a boomerang. What's the boomerang represent? Violence, right? History is littered with people who are accomplishing man's will by man's ways. You know what that is? It's the biggest, loudest bully with the most worthless and reckless fellows around them, and they win the day. This is history. This is man's way. What did the people of Israel do at this time? They trusted in man's way. God's way is altogether different. You may not be able to see it from there, but this is a ruler. God is our ruler, and God has given us a ruler, a standard to measure life by, right? Jesus said this. He said, you want to find your life? You want to hang on to your life? Give it away. That's how it's found. Instead of killing your enemy, you know what I want you to do? 
I want you to love your enemy. I want you to bless your enemy. The straight and narrow way is what Jesus taught. Jesus rose to power on a donkey. Not on a big, big old stallion. The straight and narrow way. The people of Israel at this time didn't trust in God's way. They put their weight, they put their lot in with the violent. And we see this over and over again in our day as well. So how does this walking Proverbs story end? Look at Proverbs 21.7. It says this, The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. This is how Abimelech's story ends up wrapping up. If I were to ask this question, what is Helm's Deep? Most of us would answer this. Uh, let's see, that's from Lord of the Rings, and I think it's this sort of fort that, kind of like the Titanic, was unbeatable, right? That's how most of us would answer. There are some in this room that if not in reality, I suspect they have the capability of being that person who has actually built Helm's Deep in a spare bedroom or a garage down to the last detail. And if not in real life, they've gone to Minecraft and actually built this out. Because I, I know some of you in this room that, that you have that capability. If you're that person, then the answer I just gave is making your skin crawl, right? Because you're like, no, 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 there's so much more to it. You would say Helm's Deep was a large valley in the northwest of Arid Nimrius, which is White Mountains. Um, during the War of the Ring, King Theoden of Rohan assured it has never fallen to assault, right? Giving the impression that this place was impenetrable. That's how you might answer. Yet when the enemy came, the people of Rohan sought refuge that had brought comfort all these years. Well, at least we have this fort we can go to, right? And that comfort turned to panic when the wall was breached. Here's the point. They sought refuge in what had brought comfort all these years, but it was a myth. They ran for cover. They ran to their safety net, and it didn't hold. It wasn't true. It wasn't real. Judges chapter 9. When you look at all the stories that you love, they all borrow from the great stories. Judges chapter 9 tells of two different strong towers that are built into the city that people ran to for refuge. Verse 45, follow along with me. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. I told you, this is a very violent chapter. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold. But Abimelech does something. He goes and he chops things down. He packs his stuff up with firewood and he tells all his men, what you just saw me do, all of you come and do it. Then he rushes the tower and he burns it down. And in verse 49 it says, so all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Wasn't enough to conquer the city. He went for the complete kill. What we see in Judges chapter 9 is God using two bad guys to punish one another. Two evil, wicked, violent empires that are basically used 
to devour each other. First, we see Abimelech against the evil leaders of Shechem who had gone into partnership early in the chapter. Now we see Abimelech catching the boomerang of violence right on his head. Look at verse 50. Now Abimelech went to Thebes. Just like people of violence, they get on a roll and they think, we're going to keep on going, we're going to keep on doing this. And he besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. This is our point of safety. It's never let us down. They locked themselves in and climbed up the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Proverbs. It's a living picture of Proverbs. Gets away with it for a season, but his end is sudden, from which he can't recover. Verse 55 says, When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. Now, as you read the Old Testament, as you look at your own life story, you may ask this question sometimes. God, where are you in all this? Where are you in all of this? In our own history, in your personal history, God, where are you? As you read chapter 9, you find something interesting. God appears absent, and he's not mentioned or worshipped by name in the entire chapter. This is the season of life that Israel was in. But these final few verses of the chapter, I want you to look at verse 56. They show that while he is silent and neglected by men, he is not absent. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham came on them. The ending part of the fable was that this thorn bush would burst into flame and burn the other kings as well, and that they would basically devour each other. That's what happens in the story. God is at work in the events of our lives. As you read Judges 9, here's what comes to mind. You realize that God's judgment isn't just some future event. Is God going to judge one day? Say yes. Yeah. There's coming a judgment day. But it's also an ongoing part of our lives. You know what we don't have? We don't have a divine narrator telling us what is what. But what we see in this story, we see played out in front of us. And we don't have the answer key. But sometimes God allows man's own rebellion to turn on himself and be part of God's judgment. Do you see that God judged the wicked leaders of Shechem and Abimelech in this? God orchestrated and allowed this to happen. So it is with God's judgment. There's coming a day of judgment, yes, but God is also judging as he goes, in essence. And we see that, though we don't have the answer key. God is opposed to the proud, and he will not bless wickedness. I want you just to listen to the warning and what could have been here. This is from Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom says the following, How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Catch this. If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. Do you hear the pleading of that? But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, wisdom says, in turn, uh, I will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. 
When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. When you read the story in the Bible or in the news about violent, wicked fools and the ending of their lives because of their ways, take notice of that. Warning. When you see celebrities mock God and goodness and wisdom and then crash and burn, take notice of that. Warning. When you ignore the advice and rebuke of Scripture, take notice. Warning. God is not mocked. All people will reap what they sow. Listen to how this this proverb ends. It ends with this great note of hope, verse 33. It says, but... Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. That's what it is to run for cover in God. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. We know that Helm's Deep doesn't save any more than strong towers do. Where is it that you run for cover? And is that what you think is going to save you a myth or is it a reality? Where you run for cover is where your hope is. You know what Christians do? Christians take refuge in God. Start in Psalm 120 this afternoon and just start reading for the next five Psalms. Deliver me, O Lord. My help comes from the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our eyes look to the Lord our God. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The Lord surrounds His People, do you think God is interested in communicating? Run to me. Take cover in the shelter of my wings. That's the invitation. What does it look like to actually run to and rely on Jesus as Savior? I want to close with this question. What does that actually look like? Think about the ark in the days of Noah. Think about the Passover that was taught in Egypt, that there would be the blood of a lamb over a doorpost, and all those who were inside would be saved. They would be passed over from the death angel that was going to come in exact judgment. There is one way that God has provided you safe passage from the certain payment of your sin. Run to Jesus for cover. Is this more than a quick prayer? Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. It sure is. Like Gideon, we can say the right words and then live the wrong way. You know what it means to run to Jesus for cover? It's taking steps of action onto the ark. What if you stood outside the ark and said, I believe you, Noah. I believe this ark can save. But you never took a step onto the ark. You wouldn't be saved. Your words wouldn't save you. 
How about those who were told, get inside under the covering of the blood of the Lamb? Would you go kicking and screaming if you really believed in that method of salvation? No. You would joyfully, you would make absolute sure that you were under the blood of the Lamb. What does John the Baptist pronounce on Jesus? Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Not by rightly spoken words, but by you following in Jesus. That's what it means to run for cover. 1 John 2.6 says this, Whoever claims to live in him must what? Walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him with their mouth must live the way Jesus did. You walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Next hour, we're going to have three that are getting baptized. You know what I love? I love showing up here on Sunday and hearing water filling in the baptistry. You know why they're getting baptized? Because they've professed with their mouth, they've believed in their heart, and now they're taking the actions that Jesus told them to do. Hey, I'm going to get baptized as an example to you. I've left you as disciples to go and make disciples to baptize them and teach them all I've commanded. So they're just coming in in obedience. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to sing a song that I pray God stirs something up in you as we sing it. I want you to make a decision this week, and in your notes I've left room for this. Take stock of what you run to cover in. Where do you run for cover? Assess that this week. Don't just look at your words. Look at your actions. Look at this past year and the calamities that have come on you. Where does your heart go? Where do you run for cover? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus asked this question. And I think it's really fitting to ask of a church crowd like us. He asked this, why do you call me Lord, King, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. That's the person who hears Jesus and puts his words into practice. Would you pray with me? God, this week we pray that we'd get caught obeying behind your back as if we could. I pray for us as a church that we would always run to you in all things. That we would always run to you in all things. God, you are our hope. You're our strong deliverer. This morning as we sing, God, let it be an example of us waiting on you and not rushing in to accomplish our will in our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.